Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003 and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. When I found out that people made a living doing animation voiceover, I was like, what, really? I mean, g- growing up with your friends, you know, and messing around and goofing off and stuff like that, you know, you're always doing characters, <laughs> you're imitating commercials or, you know, like scenes from a movie. I figured, wait, people get paid to do that? (laughs) I I just made it an effort to like, you know, really just uh, see what I could do to like um, do it professionally. Well, folks, today on the podcast, it is my pleasure to bring on Kevin Michael Richardson. He is a 1988 graduate of the College of Visual and Performing Arts with a drama degree. He's a classically trained actor, but that is not what we're talking about with his career on the podcast today. He is a well-known voiceover talent If you've listened to TV, if you've watched TV shows, chances are pretty good you've heard Richardson's deep voice as the voiceover star of more than 530 credits to his name, including classics like Family Guy, The Simpsons, American Dad, SpongeBob SquarePants, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the list goes on and on. He is Kevin Michael Richardson. We really appreciate you making the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, man. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Oh, listen. It's always a pleasure getting someone who's got such docid sounding tones uh, to his voice. And, and you've got that really rich kind of deep voice. When did you realize your voice was special? That like you, it was different and distinct? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I never really, oh, wow. I, it's not something I, I, I realize. It's just, uh, it's just a, a little knack that I had since, since I was a kid, you know, just like imitating like, you know, certain celebrities from TV and stuff like that. And friends would say, you know, you know, compliment me and stuff. But you see, personally, I never, I never heard that. You know what I mean? I never realized that. I, I just like, this is how I talk. You know what I mean? So, I, <laughs> and, and um, when I found out that people made a living doing animation voiceover, I was like, what, really? I mean, g- growing up with your friends, you know, and messing around and goofing off and stuff like that. You know, you're always doing characters. (laughs) You're imitating commercials or, you know, like scenes from a movie. I figured, wait, people get paid to do that? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I just made it an effort to like, you know, really just uh, see what I could do to like um, do it professionally. And of course that included studying at the, you know, SU and, you know, doing plays and like, you know, from, you know, grammar school, high school, you know, anything I can get, you know, involved with. Uh, so I was told by my peers and certain, you know, I guess instructors, you know, that I, you know, had this, this, uh, I guess, specific timber in my voice. And I just, you know, just went with it, just did the best I could with it. I personally never, it wasn't a, oh boy, a realization. Ah, man. Well, you know, now that you mentioned it, looking back as a kid, 
you know, my uh, older siblings, I'm the youngest of five, uh, they would have Barry White albums and stuff like that. And I would like listen to them constantly and like play them over and over and over again. And we're talking, I was like, oh man, like uh, eight years old, eight, nine years old, listening to them and just like, you know, literally putting my head, <clears throat> my ear to the speaker, you know, the, if, you, if you remember old fashioned stereos, like from the seventies, you know, I mean, I would just picture this little kid putting his ear to the speaker with a, with a volume turned way up and just like listening to every word of how we sang it and stuff. And, and I, I would just like go to school singing it, bring, you know, bringing the 45 to this, you know, the music teacher and like saying, hey, can we play this so I can sing it for the class? <laughs> so I guess I got a little bit of that bug from a very early age and I, maybe that was a time I guess I realized, uh, you know, and truthfully that maybe there was something I could do, do with it. I got to ask you, because you, you put it out there, give me your best uh, couple bars of Barry White since you mentioned it. I heard people say that too much of anything isn't good for you, baby. My darling, I can't get enough of your face. That type of... <laughs> bravo, bravo. I, it, and by the way, for our audience listening, it's early in the morning uh, out there on the West Coast, and uh, Kevin had no problems dusting off the pipes to give us a little Barry White. I love I love the authenticity. I love just the, the, the willingness to go with it out there. And I incorporated, I guess, a lot of that Barry type of, of style in quite a few characters in animation, you know, like like uh, like Jerome from Family Guy or Mr. Gus from Uncle Grandpa and, you know, other numerous shows that I can't even think of that people have asked me to do that type of style voice. And I try to vary them up, uh, you know, even though the tone is definitely there, uh, one might sound slower, one might sound uh, faster, one might, you know, is more hip. It, you know, but they that tone is definitely still there for most of those characters, you know. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's great. And I, I love hearing the back. I, one of my favorite parts, Kevin, about the podcast is just finding out what drives alumni and how they get down the path that they're currently on. Mm. You mentioned theater uh, playing a role in, in your life. How did you get hooked up with theater and, and what was your first impressions and why did you stick with it? Because clearly you've made a really good career for yourself doing this, uh, this talented uh, voiceover work. Thanks. You know, I think it was, <laughs> I think it was in first grade. It was a first grade talent show that, uh, <laughs> and, and this was at St. Angeles in the Bronx. Uh, God, we're talking way back. And remember, and we were only a couple of blocks away from the school. We went there and I did a scene from Sesame Street. Uh, and I can't remember what the name of the characters were, but it was that famous scene where they go, no, 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 right? And only, only I did it for like 15, 20 minutes and the same thing, the same scene. And like, and I wouldn't stop. I just wouldn't stop. And the audience was laughing because I wouldn't stop. And I got such a kick out of this, man. I was like six, seven years old. And uh, somebody, you know, the faculty had to come out and kind of like whisper in my ear and just like pull me off and tell me to leave. <laughs> and, and I just remember my family laughing. So, you know, for like days when they brought me home and that was, that was the bug. That's when I, you know, got the, you know, that theater bug, the acting bug that I had to be on stage. So, at that point, I started getting involved in like any play the school, any, you know, you know, the, the class would do and that kind of thing. 
you know, up until high school. And then God, God bless him. Um, I was a teacher from uh, St. Francis Prep, which was a school I went to in Pennsylvania um, for high school. And his name was uh, Miss Michael Hoover, Mr. Hoover. And uh, he gave me the push to like really stay in theater and got me involved in a program called the National Foundation uh, for Advancement in the Arts, which was uh, held in uh, Miami, where they had chosen out of uh, all the high schools in the United States, 3,000 kids, uh, you uh, submit a video of your acting and monologues and stuff like that, uh, and what you can do, two monologues, one, you know, comedic, one dramatic. And um, they responded, and I was chosen to be one of the top 28 kids in the United States at 17 years old. And then when I went there and performed, I was narrowed down to the top 16. And at that point, uh, you perform again, and I was narrowed down to the top eight students in the United States. This is back in 82, at 17 years old, for the presidential scholarship. And this was all because of uh, Mr. Hoover, who pushed me to get involved in that program. So uh, that, that meant a lot to me. And apparently, I think, uh, from what I found out, Vanessa Williams was also a member of that uh, program, too. Uh, so it, that was a big push, a big jumpstart for me in theater, and uh, which made me uh, say to myself, I, go, I think I'm on the right track here. This is definitely what I want to do. It's always what I've wanted to do, was perform. And, um, and that's, that was basically a launching point. And I thank that man for doing that. From your anecdotes of entertaining your childhood peers with your impressions <laughs> to getting on stage and just the, the feeling, how can you describe what it did for you when you would be performing and the audience would be eating it up. They'd be receptive. They'd be applauding. That has to be like, unlike any other feeling there is. Oh, it's amazing. You feel like, Oh my God, I have a purpose. You know, I mean, <clears throat> not to say that I'm like, you know, <laughs> Steve Martin and the jerk who goes, I found my purpose. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it was like that elation of like, Holy smokes, you know, you know, <laughs> people are digging this. People like it. And it, it, originally I wanted to be a, a, a comedian as a kid, you know, I really, I really wanted to be a kid. Flip Wilson was like, you know, the, my jam as a, as a child. If you remember watching that show or ever, if you're familiar with him, he was a very talented African-American uh, artist who would, was, was just very funny. Um, and he had his own show, especially back then, early, you know, in the early seventies. Uh, and he was a big influence for me. And I said, I want to do that. I want to, you know, be like this guy and like imitate people and have, you know, you know, you know, a variety of uh, celebrities come on and like, you know, do skits with them. Like he would have Joe Namath and, you know, all these other stars, you know, I mean, who I, I just that's what I wanted to do. However, I have a very strict uh, uh, Jamaican uh, background upbringing. My uh, father, my, my family, my entire family's from Jamaica, the West Indies. I was the first uh, to be born in the United States when they moved over. So he was very serious. He wanted me, my dad wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So, uh, and I said, I wanted to be a comedian. He was like, no, 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 you're going to do, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I go, okay. And I figured out, well, if you want me to do something serious, I'll be an actor. <laughs> I figured an actor was much more, more prestigious and respectful, a respectable, uh, uh, you know, uh, vocation uh, instead of a uh, comedian. And so I, not a, I might have lost track of what <laughs> of, of, of the question you were asking me, but um, uh, but you know that's what I originally wanted to do. But 
you know, being an actor, that's, it just, you know, and getting the reaction of, uh, whether it be students and then friends, you know, from the audience, it just, it was a positive reaction. It was like people were enjoying it. They were happy. They were laughing. They're smiling or, or they were emotional about it. And, and I, it just felt great, man. It just felt great. You felt like, yeah, okay, this is, this is it. This is what I wanted to do. And it was like the only thing that I wanted to do. Like there was nothing else, you know, I just wanted to perform, you know, uh, not be a movie star. I, I, I had a, hunger for television i just wanted to be on television i just wanted to work on it in some capacity on camera and I had no idea that it was going to like make this incredible turn into like off camera with a voiceover you know so uh so it's it was it's an interesting path i must tell you interesting path. so we, we we mentioned the fact that you were classically trained as an actor and you know you're growing up uh downstate in the bronx what was it about this kid from the Bronx that wants to attend Syracuse University, what did you like about the program and VPA and, and how that drama degree could possibly benefit you? Well, I had an older brother that had <clears throat> graduated from there before myself uh, in the class of 80, uh, Leighton, my brother Leighton. Uh, and I remember going to visit, to him, visit him and I was like, wow, this place is cool. You know, like all these pretty girls, and, <laughs> you know, it's a campus <laughs> and, you know, it was like, oh, wow, the fire engines are yellow here. I wonder why, you know, I just, it was just like this, this, this new world to me, you know. But the theater program had a great reputation. And I remember auditioning for them at Lubin House in New York. Um, and uh, they, they accepted me and I, and they, boy, they, they kicked your ass. I mean, they weren't playing around. Arthur Storch, God rest his soul, who was the chairman of the uh, drama department there. Uh, he was a chairman and artistic director there. Um, he was a tough, he was a tough ombre, tough cookie. And, uh, they, they, they really just, uh, they don't take any BS, man. They really like, uh, whipped you into shape as far as, uh, trying to get your craft together. What are some examples you can think of when you talk about being, you know, kind of molded by the department, how you are who you are now because of those experiences at Syracuse? Getting back to that uh, program that I was talking about earlier about the National Foundation of Advancement in the Arts, where they ask you to do two monologues when you go out there to perform. Um, one was dramatic and one was uh, comedic. The comedic one they, they, they laughed at. And then my dramatic piece, which was supposed to be serious, they were laughing at. <laughs> I noticed that in the first couple of minutes, I go, in my mind, I go, why are they laughing? This is supposed to be serious. And, it ended, and so I made that adjustment in my mind. I go, okay, just roll with it and go with the humor and keep performing and just make the lines, you know, even though you're trying to be serious, just go with the humor of it. And they were just, it was just uproarious. There people were like cracking up. In my mind, this was not supposed to be a funny monologue at all, you know? So I just went with it. And basically at Syracuse, you know, I remember doing a scene uh, for Lab and uh, whew, I, and I, I think I was like trying to be funny, trying too hard to be funny uh, in a scene. And um, the teacher of mine, Arthur Storch, just like he, he just he they give you a critique at the end of like, you know, any scene or monologue you do. And it was harsh. It wasn't a positive reaction at all. And we're sitting and you're sitting there in front of like, you know, 200 of your classmates in this room. And it was hard pill to swallow. So at that point, it was do or die. You know, in your mind, you're like, okay, 
do I just do I go to varsity and meet 2000 chicken wings or, you know, <laughs> or, you know, do I, you know, you, you know, do I drink myself silly and just like pass up or do I just push through, take this as a lesson and wake up and uh, make that step to uh, really do what I always wanted to do. And that's the choice I made. It was do or die for me. It was, and, and I just made that choice. Like, no, I'm pushing through and it worked. You know, I took it seriously and uh, I realized it was no joke. If you want to do this for a living, you have to really push yourself hard. And uh, that's that's how it went down. That's how it happened. And I'm, and I'm glad, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, <laughs> to go through those, you know, the pangs of, you know, the reality of like how, you know, serious, you know, getting into the business can be, you know, and you just, um, you learn, you roll with it. And you do the right, and I did the right thing, and I made the right choice, and I stuck with it, uh, regardless of the pain of being embarrassed and was told that, you know, what you did was terrible and that type of thing. I just pushed through to the point of accomplish, accomplishment, a feeling that I did something good, that I finally broke through this wall, that I can stand on my own two feet and perform and do it well. With entertainment, it's not life or death, but you're putting yourself out there. And the right. fact of the, the criticism, the, the shame that you can feel, it's not, uh, it's not an easy, uh, that's why I always tip my hat to stand up comics because they're the rawest of the raw. They're up there real live feedback is coming at them and you have to just roll with it. Like you mentioned earlier. Um, I, that's why it's, I find it fascinating that you're so willing to put yourself out there uh, and the lessons you learned from this. How did you go from, you break through, you have this moment, you realize this is for you to then getting into the profession after you graduate. How did you make that connection? Well, um, you just, uh, I hit the ground running, man. I came back uh, to New York and uh, you just, you know, you, you just started like try to get an agent. You try to, you know, hustle and get some representation somehow by getting your photos, getting your eight by tens, you know, and, and submitting them to like all these managers and agents. And, and then you got a couple bites here and there. Um, but fortunately I was asked uh, to come back to audition uh, for the Syracuse stage main stage for a play. And uh, but also while I was there um, in 86, <laughs> my first senior year, uh, <laughs> um, it took me a while. That, that was the actual year I was supposed to get out, and I got out in '88. Uh, that's another long story. But uh, no, I was asked to do uh, Romeo and Juliet on their main stage, and uh, that's where I received my equity card, my mm. theatrical equity card, which was great. After that, uh, when I actually did graduate, I was asked by Arthur Storch to um, uh, be a part of this play called How the Other Half Loves by Alan Akeborn, which was another. Uh, a main stage production that they had at the drama department there. And um, it started happening. You know, I, I, I did another play. Then I met a friend who would uh, hook me up with his agent that represented him in New York City. And I started auditioning, started getting into like uh, commercial auditionings, you know, and, you know, booked my first, you know, big international commercial for AT&T. And it just kind of started rolling from there. Um, and you had to pound the pavement. You had to, you know, walk the city and like, you know, find these different places, you know, to audition. But it really started happening. Uh, God rest his soul. Sam Lloyd, 
who played Ted the lawyer on, uh, you know, on Scrubs. Scrubs, yeah. And, and it was a really, really good, good, good guy. Uh, we were friends, really good friends with George Mazerlis, uh, who was also on Scrubs with him, had asked me to uh, do a play in California in 1991. And they said, just come out, you know, and just do, you know, if you could do the show. And I said, yes. And I thought it was just going to be for the summer of 91. And I've stayed and lived here ever since. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was Christopher Lloyd, who was Sam's uncle. And uh, Sam and George Mazerlis, who, who was also an alumni from Syracuse that had asked me to do that show. And we did it. And it was called uh, The Musical Comedy Murders of 1940. And it was done at the Tiffany Theater on Sunset Boulevard. And that theater, unfortunately, is gone now. But uh, it was a fun show. We had a good time. Uh, and it just, you know, I started auditioning. I started getting uh, guest spots on television, uh, Man, the first season of ER, I was Patrick, who was the mentally challenged patient who wore a Chicago Bear uh, football helmet and would walk around causing like mayhem and stuff in the hospital and, you know, commercials, guest spots. It just started happening, man. I mean, it just, I had no idea that it was going to be, that it was going to go as well as it did here. So you mentioned some of the the earlier breaks in, in your career doing um, you know, commercial work and doing TV work, including you mentioned for, for ER uh, mm. early on. How did you then segue into the animated world? Mm. Animation wasn't really mainstream as far as um, this plethora of offerings that we have now. How did you get your introduction to animation and what did you like about that medium? I loved it ever since I was a kid. I mean, you know, playing around, I used to take a, a tape recorder to uh, class but I put in my book bag and like during recess and break, you know, we were all in the schoolyard. I would, you know, at home before I would go to class, I would tape Spider-Man, you know, the original Spider-Man from the sixties on, you know, on my tape recorder and like bring it to class and like during a uh, recess rather. And at recess, I would play it. And then my friends would like gather around and I would act out all the scenes from, like <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson and, and like Spider-Man. And I'd sit there and go, that's right, Spider-Man. I want, you know, that guy would just like actually know the words and mouth it and like do all the fight scenes and pretend, you know, and, and the guys would just get a kick out of it and just love it. I mean, that, you know, so that was, I guess I had that bug from back then, you know, doing the voice thing. And uh, out here, and Donna Davies, who was an agent at uh, Cunningham Escott and DePini uh, at the time, which is now called CESD, uh, coming in, Scott Slevin and Doherty. Uh, she was uh, the agent for the voiceover department. And I remember going by her office, listening into her edit, like reel to reel uh, auditions. This was all on tape back, back then, you know, instead of what's digital now. And I heard all these voices, I'm, you know, she's like, hi, my name is Bill. I was like, I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, this is the voiceover department tape where we're just like, you know, editing for our clients for auditions to send out. And I go, wait, what? She was explaining to me what this this process was. And, I, and that's when early when I was saying to you, I said, wait, people get paid for this? <laughs> and she goes, yeah. I go, and send me out. 
And and they they were like, well, you know, you need to have like a reel, a minute and a half, two minute reel. And back then it was like usually cassettes, cassette tapes, you know, and and I didn't have that stuff. I said, just send me out. I mean, so I would just nag them for like a year (laughs) because I was with I was with them commercially, but you know, uh, for on camera, but not voiceover. And I nagged them for like a year and just would like come in and do sound effects and things like that. You know, I would walk in and just like do my, my uh, orange Volkswagen starting or something like that. I would just, you know, go in there and go. That type of thing. And just, they would like laugh and get a kick out of it. And, and every time I was there, it would try to come up with something new. And then they finally said, okay, look. And I think they did this basically to shut me up, was send me, <laughs> send me out on an audition. And they did. And they, they, I got called back for that audition. And so I was like, that's when it just kind of started snowballing and just uh, going on from there. You know, so I basically nagged my agent for a year to send me out. And then, you know, and it, so it was weird. It was, it was cool because I ended up making a reel after the fact that I started getting jobs instead of before. I know it's probably hard to narrow it down, but give me a couple of your all-time favorites that you've gotten to be the voice of. All-time favorite roles? You know, now you mentioned, okay, now I'm going to go through my head. Boy, Cleveland Jr., definitely from the Cleveland show. Uh, the Joker from The Batman. Uh, Captain Gantu from Lilo and Stitch, the feature and the series. Martin Luther King from Boondocks was good. Um, there was one, oh Lord. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, I, think, I know I'm forgetting some, but uh, there was one that affected me emotionally and I, and I was very connected uh, with, and it was a character called uh, Zima Blue that I played on a uh, Netflix uh, a show called Love, Death, and Robots, uh, was it a, which was an anthology, an animated anthology um, figure like, sort of like Black Mirror meets Twilight Zone meets animation. And uh, not any one of the stories are the same. And they, they're, they, they're about maybe 16 or 18 episodes, I believe I could be off. But um, each episode uh, ranges from five minutes to 16 minutes long. So they're really short. And the one I uh, appeared in was only 10 minutes long and it's called Zima Blue. And uh, that character definitely would, is, is up there with my uh, favorites, I must tell you. I'm glad you mentioned the role uh, animated of being the Joker um, because I've, I was going through your, your credits and you seem to have a bit of a tendency to, to voice over some villains uh, mm-hmm. in, in your line of work. Why is that? What, what is appealing about kind of taking on the voice of a bad guy? You know, I never found it really appealing, um, but uh, I guess the casting people did and the producers. And the producers uh, but I just went with it, rolled with it. And and the Joker, though, I must say, was so much fun to do because they let me do uh, this. The, uh, uh, they left it open. They left that entire, you know, gate open for me to like just explore and play. I mean, there was very little directing on the part of the directors, like Andre Romano, Jenny McSwain, who I'd worked with both uh, on that, that series. And uh, it I, I just felt so good to just go nuts behind the microphone. <laughs> and, and it, 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 you know, because he, he has highs and lows and he's, and he's nuts. And it just, it just felt great. And I was not trying to do anyone um, 
I was not, I was trying to stay far away from what Mark was doing. Mark Hamill, it was very, a very good friend. And actually I was rather upset when I was told about, uh, or was asked to audition. And I originally, you know, said, no. I said, why, why are they doing this? I said, this is Mark. Mark is, you know, doing a great job playing this guy. And they said, well, it's a different, it's a different, you know, genre now. It's not the same, you know, the same story as, you know, the old Batman. They're doing this new version of a Batman when he's younger and he's coming out and they're looking for a different type of Joker now. I said, oh, and I was, I was tired. I was, <laughs> I was exhausted that day. I was doing a show at the time called Like Family on Warner Brothers, which was then called WB, now CW. Uh, it was a long day. I remember going in and I put all that frustration on the microphone for the audition in order to say, okay, look, I'll just do this audition to make these people happy and leave because I really just wanted to get out of there and not do this job. And two days later, they call and said, okay, you're the Joker. And I was like, oh, shh. <laughs> I was like, you know? So I rolled with it and went with it. And uh, it just ended up being one of my favorite roles to play. It was very fun because he was just this wacky, crazy guy. And I was using a combination of, you know, Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, and uh, Martin Short's Jiminy Glick. That like uh, his character, I kind of com combined the highs and lows of these two crazy, like, you know, characters and, and with my own spin on it. And it was just fun to do. Like the, the laughs, doing the laughs alone with that. And it was so loud and crazy. I nearly passed out about five times because I would laugh so hard. I remember feeling myself like kind of blacking out and like, you know, <laughs> I went, well, okay, I got to take it easy here, you know? That's how good. That's how much I got into playing that guy. Yeah, it was fun. I love the uh, the emotional investment that you you know you take with your roles and with the Joker. Uh, you were the first uh, black man, black person to voice over the Joker character, mm -hmm. and then which is 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 awesome to to have that moment of distinction. And then you mm -hmm. look at how history repeats itself. You're now being it's hard to believe, but for those who are listening, Doctor Hibbert from The Simpsons was voiced <laughs> by a white talent and now you took over the role of, of Dr. Hibbard uh, on the iconic show The Simpsons so you're making history again um, I love the fact that even though it's animation it's reflective of the times where we're so sensitive to racial justice and making sure that the people that we're watching and hearing are represented by who they should be a black person should be voicing over a black doctor on The Simpsons what does it what does it mean to you to take that role. And I, I know he is kind of known as the wacky Dr. Julius Hibbard. He has a great laugh, but it seems like there's really a, a connection with current events with making the switch. It's big, man. It's, it's kind of bittersweet for me it, it, because, you know, Mr. Shearer, Harry Shearer did such an amazing job playing this guy and is very funny for all these years. So to step in the, you know, those shoes afterwards, it's, it, it was, it was, it was an honor because originally I said the Again, I said to the producers who had asked me about a year or so ago, I said, no, no, <laughs> no, it's all right. And but I guess they were auditioning a lot of folks and they uh, they were, I guess, exploring to see what that what else they can come up with. And they, you know, come around full circle back to me and asked me to try it again, to, you know, give it a try again. And I just did the best I could. It was not really a dead on Hibbert at all. I mean, uh, but I, it was definitely, I guess you would say in the ballpark. So I accepted, you know, I played the guy and 
it was a big deal. I had no idea the uh, impact it would have on fans. You know, there was a, uh, there's a, there's a lot of love out there and there's a lot of folks that are like, Hey, you know, you know, bring our old guy back. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's hard to describe. It's, it, it's, I'm honored and it, it feels really great uh, to be, you know, part of that uh, show. The huge, you know, amount of joy for like the acknowledgement that people say, okay, you know, let's give this to an African-American man to play the role. I mean, it's, it, that's just, it just meant a lot to not feel invisible. You know what I mean? And so that part was, I think, uh, great. That, that part felt good. That part felt good. Taking away somebody's job is kind of bittersweet for me. It might be different over the last year because people have been sheltered in place versus being in public, but how often do you get recognized? How often does someone hear that voice of yours and they can identify you? It's every once in a while. And then some people like sometimes will come up to me and say, hey, you're Stan from How I Met Your Mother or, you know, but um, still getting a lot of fan mail and Oh boy, it could be at a grocery store. Uh, It'll be in very unexpected places where people will come up to you and say, I know you or you sound familiar or stuff like that. So it's so sporadic and random, John. It's, 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 uh, it's either like, you know, it could be from anywhere from like, you know, you know, crickets to like, okay. You know, like this, this you know, semi like uh, not mob, but a nice little crowd, a nice little gathering. And it's 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 not as often as you think, but it's nice when it happens. You know, it's nice. It's a very anonymous business, too, which, which is cool, you know, because uh, a lot of the on camera stuff that I've done, you know, this been years ago, unless there's reruns and I've gotten a little older, <laughs> a little grayer and, you know, people recognize you. Uh, so. But with voiceover, um, it, it can be quite the anonymous business. You know, I know that there's no one tried and tested method of getting into any career path or profession. There's always different breaks that happen along the way. If someone's listening and they want to follow in your footsteps and getting into voice acting work, what's the best piece of advice you would give them? I would say uh, definitely have fun. Start recording uh, yourself. Uh, and what what type of voiceover do you want to do? Do you want to do uh, trailers for movies? Do you want to do, uh, you know, informational stuff like industrials, you know, uh, uh, you know from what you hear on television commercials? I mean, uh, do you want to do animation? I would say start playing around with your voice. Start recording yourself and, like, testing yourself out, seeing what you like, you know, best and explore. And, um, you know... Uh, and then you would have to get representation. Some people do non-union work, some people don't. And it's really, it's, it's who you know a lot of the time, you know what I mean? But doing plays, man, acting, because you're also acting with your voice. If you can get involved in anything, uh, any type of performance, whether it be a local uh, play, uh, whether you're in school, uh, school play, high school play, college, uh, your community, anything, Get in, I would get involved in any type of theater as much as, uh, as much as you possibly can because you're also that that way you're you're starting the organic process of learning how to act and then you can carry that over into a microphone when you're acting with your voice you know that really really helps and then um, get your reel together which means get your material together whether it be animation or you know uh, commercial uh, which shouldn't be longer than a minute and a half to two minutes tops. 
and then you you know uh, you send it out, send it out to uh, you know agencies and ask for representation. But it's really it's really who you know because these agencies they get like tapes you know up the wazoo left and right you know or, or CDs or MP3s. So just just get out there and just ask. Don't be afraid to ask questions and say, hey, excuse me, how can I? You know, or call and say, "Can I set up a meeting with you? Can I meet with you?" That type of thing. You know, I like you know, I'd be a nag like I was. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really you know, it's been so interesting to pull back the curtain from uh, Barry White impersonator uh, as a child to classically trained uh, theater actor at Syracuse University to now the groundbreaking role of Dr. Hibbert on The Simpsons and so many stops in between. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson, you've had a great story to share with us. I really thank you for making the time out of your busy schedule to share your Orange success story and best of luck with all your future endeavors. Oh, thank you, John. Really, thank you for having me, man. It was was just good to talk to a fellow alumni. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.